two, three. Welcome to. <laughs> no, we gotta do it at the same time, so we're just gonna stay recording. Welcome, Welcome to, to a Florida, Florida thing. thing. I am your host, Tyler, with my grandmother, Grammel. On today's episode, we're gonna be talking about Gail Massey and her book, The Girl from Blind River. Awesome. Awesome book. In the first segment, we'll be chatting about the book, and then in the second segment, we will be talking to her. Okie dokie. I can handle that. I've got a lot to say about that wonderful book. In this first segment, we are going to be talking about Gail Massey's novel, The Girl from Blind River. It came out in 2018. The book follows a teenager who is living with her uncle and her brother because her mother had been in prison. It was an awesome book, one I probably never will forget. It was a book that I probably read one night and read to about four o'clock, slept, got up, started reading again at eight o'clock and finished that night because it just, I couldn't put it down. It was just very well written. And I just have to tell you, it ends great. I love a book or a movie or a story that everything comes together and clicks and fits together, prepares you for the next step. I think it should be made into a movie. Adventure, action. She uses her brain instead of her body. So it's not like a Tom Cruise, but it's more like Julia Roberts would play her. They play a lot of poker. And Jamie is particularly very good at poker. Her brother doesn't seem to be all that good at it, and he's got all kinds of problems. Her brother, who's still in high school. And her mother's out of prison as of the starting of the book, but they still live with an uncle who's very mean and ignorant. And his name is Loyal, which I thought was... Yeah, like, really? (laughs) He's loyal to one person, specifically. He's loyal to money and greed. Jamie likes to play poker, and have you ever played poker? Yes. I think you could put all my poker together, and I could tell you I've probably played three hours of poker in my 77 years. I've never really gotten into poker. I don't even really know the rules. Don't you remember I wouldn't know how to play. I don't summer. remember, though, the rules. How old was I when that happened? It was in the summertime, and we had all had change, and you were probably like eight or nine. And we decided that we stayed in our pajamas all day. And when Grandpa got home from work, we played poker. And my mother came out and said that I was going to ruin you. And you did. <laughs> and I said, Mom, it'll be fine. And we played poker all night. But then I got time to eat or go to bed or something, and we put all our change in uh, Dixie Cups and never played again, so we didn't ruin you. I thought that was gin rummy. No, it was poker. Didn't we play rummy? I've never played gin rummy. I don't even know if that's what I've it's never, called. No, I haven't ever played rummy that I remember. I think card players and loyal, their whole life was, that was playing cards and making money and cheating people. I think that's that's something that I found really interesting because I don't know the rules of poker, but I think Gail did a really good job. Like, I didn't need to know the rules. I still understood what was happening. And she didn't explain it in a way that was, like, too much or I was getting bored. I mean, it was pretty fast-paced with that. And she was talking about, like, the numbers game and, like, the math that goes behind it. And they were cheating a lot. They did have some ways to mark cards and all of that kind of thing. And I never heard so many different names for poker either as 
they would mention, just in passing, so to speak. But it was a dog-eat-dog career, to say the least. And it, it fanned out to gangs that were illegal. They were running an illegal circle. Actually, that's, it was a very interesting book, and it started out like there was just no redemption in anybody. Mostly, there was nobody she could trust. Well, her brother. But she didn't. But she couldn't really trust her brother because he wasn't stable. He had a bad temper. He had a bad temper, and his mom being in prison really affected him very deeply. And then their father was not around. Yeah, and they lived in squalor. And I mean, you know, you would think all the money that passed hands is. They were constantly drinking whiskey and beer and smoking cigarettes and yeah. pot. I mean, you know, pop tarts was their breakfast. They did not eat well at all. Did not eat anything that was good for them. So they had no home life. And even her friends were kind of shady. It was very well written. And it was not at all predictable. I love a book that's not predictable. Well, in one way she did that is she switched perspectives and some of the chapters. There was a third person narrator, but she would focus more on one of the characters in this chapter. She focused a lot on Jamie, but then she would also focus on the mom. Yeah, that would be where the uh, human interest would come. And the mother started growing on you too. All those people were so messed up. This book isn't set in Florida. It's set in a much colder part of the country. But the thing is, the character sees Florida, Jamie sees Florida as her second chance. She constantly wants to get down to Florida so she can go to South Florida and play on the professional poker circuit. That's a common theme that I see a lot is like Florida being the second chance for people and also with gambling. I mean, it's a big part of the state's history, too, with the rum runners. Prohibition started in 1920 and it lasted until 1933. And then the rum runners would bring the alcohol, whiskey, and stuff like that from all over. And they would go down to the Caribbean. They'd use Florida because Florida has a lot of coast. And there were some famous rum runners. One specifically was named William Bill McCoy. They got the term the real McCoy from his letter. I was going to ask you, is that where that came from? So there is a lot of kind of illegal activity and that has been part of the state's history and why some people come down here. Well, and to me, I saw Florida as her goal. The weather in Florida is so much better than, because she was cold a lot. While the uncle is a very, there's really, seems to be not much redeemable about him. He's not a great person. He's very abusive and all of these things. I'm interested to ask her about his character, because do you think he was a closeted gay man? Well, yeah, that's what they kept. Remember the postcard business? The, the postcards that he got uh, regularly once a year? Or but it wasn't. I mean, I think there's room for debate with that. Because we don't. I mean, I think it's pretty in the text. But I'm also wondering if it's saying because he was closeted in a small town, that was one of the reasons why he drank so much and was such an awful person. Because he didn't get to live his out life. Well... I mean, I don't. He was mean, though. I mean, I'm not saying he wasn't. He was mean and abusive and all of these things. But he had, he thought he was doing the right thing at one point in his life, apparently. Yeah, but he, well, that, if you want. Well, I'm not, I'm just. It's a different way of uh, uh, thinking about it. And, uh, but. Because his whole thing was that he didn't want the kids to go into foster care, which I think is, some people do hold that belief that family. 
even if it's bad, that's your responsibility to take care of those kids. But do you think that decision was left up to him? Or was there a person in, in his life right. that wanted him to make that but decision? But why wouldn't, that was my question though, why wouldn't he just go to Key West then with his man friends? Well, what stopped him from doing what that? What period of time was this? Oh, they had an internet, they were playing online poker. But that is a thought. And there, I do believe there were questions about different things. But her, her characters did not have too much loyalty. They weren't really loyal to their friend. They weren't really loyal to their mate to a certain extent. I'm just going to say it was kind of showing you the underbelly of people. Well, I think, too, when you have as many vices as these characters did, when you're drinking as much as they are, when you're gambling as much as they are, because you could lose $2,000 in a minute. Yeah. Or I don't know how long poker takes, but, like, in a hand. Yeah, right. You know? And they did. (laughs) Some of them would go all in or whatever. So when you have all of that adrenaline and then you're drinking and then you have this anger issues and you're doing things that are illegal, it's probably hard to stay loyal to people because your loyalties shift depending on the circumstances. And it showed that people fell into the trap no matter where they were from, no matter if they were rich or poor. And so it was... Well, they were mostly poor, except for a couple people. I thought it was funny. I kept thinking that, uh, see, I'm a housewife, mother, that's also had several careers and loved it, but the girl never mentioned doing the dishes, mopping the floor. Yeah, she was always cleaning up after her uncle. She was picking up trash. Right. She wasn't doing They anything. lived in a trailer they that had school. broken windows and burn marks on the couch. Yeah. They had no, to me, no sense of home. Right. But that was their home, and, and that was their family. But I think, too, I mean, talk about loyalty, but loyalty can get you. Sometimes it's not the best thing. I'm thinking for her, for the protagonist, because if she was loyal to her family in certain situations. I'm not talking about her. I mostly the she men. Was, I believe she was loyal. As loyal she to the end, she was loyal. Right. You know, but uh, it was other people. It was such a good book. Because the way that all came about was really good. There was this really good twist and turns that was totally believable. Yeah, and I think everything was really set up nicely, like you were saying. The dominoes were falling, but it didn't feel predictable. And I, I was, my heart was racing. Oh, yeah. I was concerned. And it was like every now and then the domino didn't fall right. But Gail fixed it that that was fine, too. And it still continued on the track. And and she was a good person. And I kind of think there was another couple or two people or three. Oh, yeah. There were several people in there that was very... Yeah. I mean, and I think if circumstances would have been different, maybe other people would have been able to be good people as well. When you have addictions that don't always leave you with a clear mind. Even if you're like my addiction to chocolate. Uh, sometimes you don't have a clear mind when you want chocolate real bad. They had some addictions, and that, I don't want to give it away, because I could tell you all about it, because now that my juices are flowing, but I want you to read it. I want people to read it. And remember, it takes all kind to make the world go round. 
All right, well, that's a little bit about The Girl from Blind River, and we will be talking with Gail in a bit. Okay, looking forward to it. See ya. (laughs) No, yeah, see. In the last segment, we talked about Gail's book, and now we're going to talk to Gail. We're going to get into how she wrote about poker, how her writing has changed since quarantine, and we're going to get into a really in-depth discussion about Loyal, the character that my grandmother and I were talking about earlier. We also talk about Florida. So you grew up in Florida and Pinellas Park, and then you moved. Where did you go after that? So I spent 10 years in Pinellas Park, and then I spent eight years in St. Petersburg. And then I fled for the big city when I came out and turned of age. I went to Atlanta and spent 30 years in Atlanta, and I recently moved back here. Yeah. Wow. I met my wife at a birthday party in Mexico, and she happened to live in St. Petersburg. So it was sort of like a a full circle. Wow. I love that. Just like a random party? No, it was a friend's, a mutual friend's birthday party. It was uh, my best friend's birthday party and, and my best friend's partner was Lyra's best friend. So we all congregated in Puerto Vallarta, which is a really fun place. I love that. Our dog is barking a little bit. So we both read your book and thoroughly enjoyed it. And we do have some questions about the book and your writing. Okay. Uh, I was wondering if you could start just telling us a little bit about how this book came to be when you first started writing it and its kind of path to publication. Great. Yeah, I, I was working on a novel for years and I finally decided that it was just not really going to be viable. It didn't have a plot. It didn't, it didn't work in the way novels are supposed to work. So I, I put it in a drawer, but by that time I had gathered a lot of writing skills and I knew a lot more about plot and novels. I read a couple of books. I read The Queen's Gambit and then I read uh, Winter's Bone and also during that time, I had been learning how to play poker. So at what, yeah. So at, at one point, this idea for this character, Jamie Elders, just sort of popped in my head. And I, I thought, this is a novel that can go the distance. I think I can make this long enough, a long enough story to, to be a legitimate novel. So I started writing on it and it took me a couple of years and I had a friend read it and I got some feedback and I took out about a hundred pages and tried again. It took about two years to get the final first draft. And then, uh, then I got a, a real lucky break and got introduced to an agent and things, things went forward from there. But I always saw it as a trilogy. I, I think that my second manuscript is about Jamie Elders too. And I, I envision a third one. The second one hasn't found a home yet, but stay tuned, it will. Started writing the first one in 2013 and finished it in 2015. And then it sat for a while because uh, my mother had passed away and I really lost all of my mojo for, for the project, for writing. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It was a, a tough year, right? It's yes. always tough. It changes your mind about so many things and it's something you have to spend a little time metabolizing to get feedback on the ground again. Yeah. And normal becomes a different normal. 
Yeah, it sure does. Spoken as someone who has been through that ringer once or twice, huh? Yes, my most recent was my one and only uh, sibling, my brother. Oh yeah. But then I then I had a son uh, at forty three. That's still hard to talk about. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I bet it is. I'm sorry. That's. I, I, I always go straight there in interviews and we, I mean, it's also, you know, who doesn't like a little cry in the interview? What's wrong with that? Um, but <laughs> also July is just a tough month because he passed away. In July? The summers can be kind of tough, at least July. We were talking a lot about the ending and we think the ending of the book was really good and we liked it. But we, you know, we were like, we wanted to know what the future looks like. So I think it's interesting that you say that you saw it as a trilogy because that kind of makes me happy to see what happens. Yeah, the the next book, we all come back to Florida. So the whole book is set in South Florida. And I'm still very interested in themes of uber wealth versus poverty and male power versus uh, impoverished female power. So those are, I guess, that's my uh, main interest in life, in, in writing life, is to talk about those things. And well, I think gambling, you know, brings a fun current to it, you know, because so much can happen and so much is, is left to chance for gamblers. Well, I watch this one program on TV sometimes. It's people who become millionaires and then they want to buy a new house. It's a lottery dream house show. Yes, a lot of I'm surprised how many of those people are jackpot, poker ja- uh, jackpot winners. I wonder if people, when they're young, they, you know, oh, I want to be a gambler when I wake, you know, when I grow up. <laughs> well, and I think, too, in Jamie's situation, she didn't really have as many opportunities to get out of the situation that she was in. So poker kind of seems like it became that for her. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted a character, uh, you know how you um, you put a character in the worst possible scenario and and uh, watch them try and get out. That's, that's sort of what I had in mind with taking away all of Jamie's options and leaving poker as her only viable way to see a future for herself and to pursue a f- future for herself. So that was that was sort of the premise that I was working on these other characters sprung up as, as sort of ways to like, you know, push her down further because the further you push a character down, you know, the more interesting the story gets, unfortunately. Right. And it, it was very interesting in seeing her slow but sure growth. I think a lot of her uh, challenge was that she was so loyal to her dysfunctional family. And so she wasn't going to just get out of it And I found she was actually even kind of loyal to her uncle. So she had to also almost fight against that loyalty to these characters that wasn't doing anything but dragging her down. I'm very interested, perhaps even obsessed with family dynamics and family loyalty and, and what you're taught, what love is. Is love really loyalty or are those different things? And how does uh, some young woman pursue her own future and her own mental health in the face of a very dysfunctional family? And then I like the way, basically, I would call it her protagonist, actually started bringing out the good in her, I think. I think she saw the 
detective as somebody that maybe could finally change her path. Yeah, I, I like the dynamic between Jamie and, and Garcia in that she has been taught her whole life not to trust law enforcement because they're the ones that puts the elders in, in jail. But she has, that's really kind of the crux of her, of her change is when she begins to get an inkling that maybe he's someone she can trust. Yes. And then the development of a little bit of trust there. Yeah, that's, that's a nice uh, memory to revisit Jamie and, and Elder and uh, Garcia. I wanted to ask you, so what got you into playing poker, you said, um, because what I found nice about the book, too, is there is a lot of poker in there, and I don't know the rules of poker. I mean, I know ace is a good card, queen. I, you know, I, I just have never played. But I, I wasn't getting lost because I thought you were explaining what was happening enough for me to understand. So what got you into playing poker, and then how did you manage that in the writing? Well... My wife is a really good poker player. So when I got together with her about 13 years ago, um, I saw that I needed to understand what poker was because she loved it. So I started playing with her and her friends and then and learning more about it. And I think it's fascinating to go to a poker room and play uh, because you're going to play with 99% men. And they can find ways to be intimidating and sort of gang up. And all of the dealers are male. So there's this whole other dynamic about being in a poker room or at a poker tournament. And then I started learning the poker language. It's beautiful. It's like any sport. It has all these short nicknames for various moves and and card combinations. It's really fascinating. So in my first draft, the book was full of poker language that nobody would understand except except a poker player. So I had to work on that pretty hard, actually, to get it to a point where there was still some of the flavor of poker language in there, but it flowed enough to where, you know, the most of the readers would not understand the lingo, right? So you have to sort of find a way to, like, say what it is and then use the lingo and then move on without having tripped up your reader to the point that they're just stuck or they or they leave the book and they go to Google and try and figure out what a full house is or something. It's a tricky little thing. And it took several drafts, several edits to go back through it and get it as well as it is. And I still had some complaints that people, you know, weren't f- thrilled with the, the poker aspect, but you know. I found it really readable, and I, I liked that that aspect because I was kind of learning as I was going about. Well, I found it very uh, easy to read also. My daddy played poker. Back in the day, that's what people did for entertainment. As I got married and things were tight, you play cards as a cheap way of entertainment. Yeah. And uh, then I'm not in the club now, but I was in. They only had the, the meetings, I swear where they could play uh, cards afterwards. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, they did a lot of good, and I was impressed because they did do a lot of work, but they played cards afterwards. Senior (laughs) citizens I used to work with loved playing cards. 
Oh, yeah. But they had to like skirt the rules of the gambling because where I was working, you weren't allowed to gamble, but they had like 50 cents. I don't, I don't even know what was happening, but they somehow got around those rules. Yeah, I grew up lear- learning to play ordinary games like um, spades and yeah. cards and Uno. And my mother loved playing cards. She would, uh, yeah, she would just play cards for hours um, if she could get someone to stay with her or stick <laughs> with her for a game. But um, she, she liked to make up her own rules as she went along. So you never really knew what the rules were. Because <laughs> <laughs> she was always winning too, probably, right? They switched to yeah, put her in the lead. Absolutely. <laughs> I just have never had the mind for poker. And I don't like to gamble. I like to keep my money where I can see it. So I've never <laughs> been drawn to the game. Yeah, yeah. It's a game. I think it, it costs a lot of money to learn how to play poker well. And by the time you've learned the game well enough to, to achieve at it, you've spent a ton of money. You've spent five figures for sure. So wow. <laughs> money, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. And I really, I also really enjoyed the part where they were counting cards and stuff like that. Cause I know enough about it to know that that's a thing that happens. And so I thought that was a really cool aspect too. Yeah, there's so many really fun, illegal poker stories that actually happen every day in casinos all across the country, and I guess the world. But poker players are, there are a lot of really nice poker players, but they don't make interesting stories. Right. (laughs) The ones that are cheating and taking bad advantage of other people, that's a more, much more interesting story. How did it come out that you had the football player in there and the, uh, and the way the ring became so important to the story? My, uh, my good friend read it and he gave it back to me and he said, you need a dead body. Mm. And Every and story needs a dead body. I did something at least. <laughs> I, was, I had never written anything about a dead body before. So, but I knew I needed one and I sat down and I wrote TJ Banger and lots of alcohol and that, that poker game at the judge's house. And it, it was not as hard to write as I thought. It was, it went pretty well. <laughs> kind of scary, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little revealing. Maybe I should write more dead people. I wanted to ask you about the third person narration and how it kind of switches characters at certain points where in the writing did you make that choice and why did you make that choice for me this was um, a natural way to move the story along my first choice was to be devoted to the story more than to any of the characters but i knew who my protagonist was and that was jamie so whenever i switched a point of view it was to provide the reader more information that maybe Jamie didn't have access to. So some people gravitate to writing first person. I find that really hard for a full length piece of work. So switching characters for me, it was just the easiest access point I had to getting the full story on the page. The characters were were organic, her mother, her uncle, her brother, in the, well, in the first draft, Tyler, her uncle had a point of view, but that was taken out in the, in the final draft. Um, and then Garcia was, was somewhat um, 
you know, he, I needed him. I needed someone outside the family. I needed someone investigating someone in the law. So he was sort of, he fit a lot of, a lot of the bill for, for the fifth character. I think it helped us understand the characters and relate to them and feel for them in a way that maybe we wouldn't have if it was just from Jamie's point of view. One character we spent a lot of time discussing was Loyal, the uncle. She was saying that she doesn't see any redeemable qualities from him, and he's just kind of the main bad, abusive person. And I was wondering about the kind of queer subtext that we were getting from him and kind of saying maybe it wasn't even subtext, maybe it was text with some of his relationship. And I really saw it as him staying in a town where he wasn't able to be his out self and how that may have pushed him into some of these more dark places. But maybe that was just me as a queer reader reading into that. I was wondering about you writing that character and kind of your thoughts on him. That is, it was text and subtext. It started out as subtext and then it developed further. And that's one of the... um, it's not quite a regret, but his point of view, him speaking from his own mind, yeah, I really regretted losing that. But I, I feel like I was able to capture most of who he was um, and keep that in the book. I wanted to sketch a character who was living the impact of not being able to be his true self and not being able to pursue the love that was offered to him in this lifetime through Bobby and Key West and the impact of that on him and also the choices that he made to raise the kids, uh, you know, what were those choices really based on? Were they based on love or were they based on pride? And I, I think Loyal made his decisions based on pride and, and then his follow-through was less than adequate. Mm. And I think that what was interesting, too, just about location, where we have Jamie seeing Florida as her opportunity and to be on the poker circuit in South Florida, and then Key West, which is such an like, iconically gay place in Florida, you know? So it was, like, interesting how geography was also, for specifically Florida, as this chance to be yourself or, like, some kind of freedom that you might have. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Florida does give people a lot more freedom to be themselves um, than a, than a lot of other places, especially like a, a small blue collar town in mid state New York, where you know you have one high school graduating class of of thirty or forty people who are homophobic, and the opportunity that Loyal gives up to go to Florida but he stays to raise the kids. And that doesn't necessarily end up making him a better person. It maybe it makes him a more bitter person. And then when Toby, I I wanted to look at the inner, the play between generations of homosexuals who got to do what they got to pursue their true identity and versus generations where people did not have that opportunity and the anger and resentment that might come from that. It's, it's, it's something that's on my mind. And that was definitely on my mind when I was writing Toby and Loyal. So what, what was the decision to cut Loyal's perspective then? And what draft stage did that come in? So the publisher bought it. And one of the agreements 
we made before we signed the, the contract was that I would take the point of view characters from seven to five. So that was something that was an external, you know, rule put on, put on the manuscript. And when I was going through it, trying to do that, Loyal had four chapters and someone else had five. So it was kind of just an economic decision at that point. So the publishers were kind of like, from a marketing standpoint or from a reader's, they can deal with five perspectives, but six or seven, that's asking too much. You know, they're there. Tommy Orange's book that just won, I don't won something huge, has 47 perspectives. But as a debut writer, I was listening to their marketing scheme and, and their plan, and that's what they thought. So that's, that's how that went. And now you've mentioned you have a sec, you have a second book out, and you're on your third, right? Um, so I have a collection of short stories coming out next spring, and my second manuscript regarding Jamie Elders is finished, and it's being shopped around right now, looking for a publisher. Oh, so it's not out yet. Not yet, no. Now, see, I had the uh, a different aspect with um, loyal. I only thought he took the children, basically. The judge got his hand in it and had a way of getting the money, had something on loyal or whatever. And so I didn't, I didn't uh, come out gleaming that loyal was a good guy at all. Yeah, there's that, that uh, part of the thread, too. He was getting government funding, Social Security death benefits for, the hus- for their father. That was woven in there, too. Yeah. That's something that's kind of cool about us reading the same books is we can have completely different reads because we, (laughs) you know, have two different points of view. So Mm -hmm. you said that you have a short story collection coming out in the spring. What theme of that collection or, or do we see any of the same characters or what's kind of going on with that? You'll see Toby. Oh, yay. Yeah, I love Toby. I figured that he had to go into an institution. Mm hmm. Well, he he doesn't, thankfully. Thankfully. <laughs> That's, That's why I'm really yeah. glad to know what's happening next, because I felt concerned for his well-being. Everybody <laughs> is concerned about Toby. I, I really kind of left Toby in a bad spot. <laughs> <laughs> People are very interested in, you know, what becomes of him. Yeah. He's in the second manuscript, too. But uh, in the collection of short stories, he's there, and... Most of the short stories are written from a, a girl or a, fe- or a woman's point of view. And it's about, a lot of it's about mother-daughter dynamics and father-daughter dynamics. There's a, a story in there about racial tension within a family. A story about a, a young woman going off to Iraq in the war. So it's a collection of 13 stories, and I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I am. Yeah, it That's seems great. like you are. I love that. Do you have a... What's the title of it? There's one story, it's called Rising. So that'll be the title of the collection. Great. That's yeah. a good title. I'm just trying to write as true to my experience of life in the U.S. as I can. And I think that's great to have that's- an authentic point of view and not be kind of worried about what this imagined reader might want because then it can be maybe expected or not as true to life. 
Well, I think, you know, as a writer, you have to find, uh, you have to find your own voice. And if you're, if you constantly have a, a an audience in mind, I think you're going to just get blocked. Writing is like alchemy. You're just pulling thoughts and out of your mind and putting them into words. I, I mean, some people do really well with an, an audience in mind. I, I just don't think that's my particular style. And so how has your writing practice kind of changed in these past few months of quarantine? Yeah, I was going downtown to an office that I loved every day. I was going down, I was getting five or six really productive hours every day. I gave the office up and I work at home now. And that's, that's really different. I mean, when you find a place that you really love, you know that the energy and the light is just right for you, it's really hard to give that up. But I've given it up until the spiking decreases and perhaps until we have better treatments and a vaccine. So I'll be writing from home for the next foreseeable six, seven months, I think. I worked uh, at home while I did medical transcription. And it's a whole different ball game working at home. And people uh, don't always uh, respect <laughs> that. And it's really so hard. You end up working all the time. Yeah, that's true. You don't have a eight hour, or like you said, you work, stayed there for six hours. Yeah. Uh, which is ideal. And I yeah. can see where you could get much more done. Yeah. I just, I finished my second manuscript downtown. I, uh, it was the most productive environment I've ever been in. I'm definitely going to go back as soon as it's safe. Has it changed yours? I'm doing a podcast instead of writing, so maybe. Good. <laughs> I think a podcast is a brilliant idea. <laughs> Good for you for thinking of that. <laughs> It's, it is kind of cool, though, because some of our episodes, like we do the author chats, but then we kind of alternate and they're more storytelling and like what's going on in the news. So there is a storytelling aspect and I'm still feeling creative. It's just sitting down to write. It doesn't, this just seems like something I'm more wanting to do. Follow your heart. Follow your creative spirit. Thank there's you. nothing worse. Yeah, nothing worse than, than trying to make yourself write when when you know the energy's not there. And I'm kind of in between projects and the next project I want to work on is going to involve probably a lot of interviews and stuff and and being out going to visit places. So I kind of really can't do that kind of work that I, that I want to do right now. So it's a time of reflection, reading, hanging out with my grandmother, all of those things. Yeah. It's also a good time. I just finished up two classes, two online classes with authors writers that I really admire. So that's, that's been great. You know, I learned some, some really wonderful things just in the last two weeks. So what, what's nice is that you can have access to some of the writers that you really admire because they've, they were traveling the country. Now they're at home doing zoom and that can be a good thing. Well, I just, I'll just say, uh, I think would make a wonderful movie. And it would be kind of a chick flick movie, but very action filled. We and like very, chick flicks in this and, house. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I live for chick flicks and chick books, except not always. But anyway, 
I just found your book was very, very interesting, too, and would make a wonderful movie. I haven't decided who should play the lead yet. I think you messaged me that there's maybe some interest or some momentum to maybe seeing that happen. It's a shopping agreement with a, a screenwriter in L.A., so she's uh, putting together an outline and a pitch to take it around to the producers in LA or the production companies. So nothing could come of that or, you know, something could happen tomorrow. It's one of those Hollywood deals where you just never know what's going to happen. That's exciting. I have great hopes. Yeah, thank you. I'm pretty, I've always seen this as a movie. So, and that's how I wrote it was sort of like, as though I had a camera on top of my head filming, you know, the things I was making up in, in my mind. Well, that's interesting. So you thought as a movie also. I think um, my main teacher in like 2013 and 14 is a, is a Hollywood screenwriter and producer. So he had a, a large impact on how I saw writing, writing in scenes and plot. So yeah, I, I had that frame of mind when I wrote it. Well, thank you so much for chatting. I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking and hearing yes. about your process. Thank you so much for having me. This is, it's, it's always fun to, to talk about The Girl from Blind River because, you know, I've written two manuscripts since then. And it's, it's a joy to go back and, and see people uh, who, who enjoy those characters. It's oh, fun. yeah. And I, I, I'm looking forward to the next book because I know these guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm really excited about it. And it was a really delight to meet you, to meet you. the author of a, a great book. You did a great job. Well, that was our episode. We got to read the book. We got to talk to Gail. I sure wasn't disappointed. She was awesome and wonderful, too. So what do you have going on for the rest of your day? I'm going to go to the spa <laughs> and I get the full treatment, you know, ending up with a clay mask. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, you all subscribe to the podcast, send us a note, subscribe to the newsletter, do all that good stuff. Tell a friend, tell a frenemy, place your bets on us. We will see you soon or maybe never, but hopefully, and have a great sunny day. You won't be disappointed. Stick with us. Bye. Bye.